the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast. I'm Laura Slattery and on the show this week, I'll be talking music streaming wars with Kira O'Brien as Apple bids to play catch up in a business that has cut into its own digital download business. But first on our agenda today, as you might not hear too many politicians saying, is climate change. The long-awaited climate change bill finally passed through the committee stage of the Dáil this week, while today sees the launch of an expert advisory council on climate change. Meanwhile, Minister for the Environment Alan Kelly has warned that setting tougher carbon targets than the rest of the EU could endanger our economic recovery. Here to discuss this and all the developments this week are Owen Burke-Kennedy of the Irish Times, who has been reporting on the formation of the Council this week, and Oisín Coughlin, Director of Friends of the Earth, who is also a member of the National Economic and Social Council. He's been calling for stronger and more meaningful government commitments. Owen, what is the main aim of the Council and will it be effective? Yeah, well, obviously, um, it, the new body is definitely, uh, undoubtedly, a landmark in the development of the state's climate change policy. Its primary purpose will be to assess the government's annual um, progress in cutting carbon emissions. So um, it'll be chaired by uh, economist John Fitzgerald, who retired from the uh, ERSI last year. So it's it's um, ten member council uh, also comprised of four ex officio members from the Environmental Protection Agency, Chagas, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, and the URSI itself, as well as six independent members. So apart from holding the government to account each year for its progress in cutting emissions, it will also advise generally on strategy and policy in relation to climate change. So how effective it will be, we just have to wait and see. So, Oisín, we've just heard about the membership of this panel. Are, are there any surprises there for you? Um, yes, there's a, there's a couple of interesting names for sure. Uh, the, 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 I suppose the eye-catching one is uh, uh, Otmar Edenhofer, who's one of the co-chairs of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He, he, he co-chaired the working group on mitigation, which is what this council will principally advise upon, as in how do, how do we reduce our, our climate-changing emissions. So it wasn't known beforehand whether would they have... Um, many uh, foreign experts, so to speak, or would it be a, a purely Irish panel? Um, so he, he is a, a good catch, let's say, for this committee to have. That he's prepared to give his, some of his time uh, to help us make, make the transition. Uh, but overall, the, the, the council, the membership is relatively strong. I mean, John Fitzgerald as chair, Frank Convery uh, has a lot of experience in this area, Joe Curtin, who's, uh, who's, who works a lot with the IIEA, Alan, Professor Alan Matthews, Anna Davies, Peter Clinch, it's a strong enough lineup. Our our concern really has been twofold: the role of the ex officio members, uh, and the legal uh, guarantees of the independence of the council. Because basically, the advice from uh, the Oireachtas committee, not just yesterday, but back when they did pre-legislative scrutiny on the bill in, the, in what was termed political reform, they all came back and said, "Make this like the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. We want something similar." And the government hasn't done that. It doesn't have the same legal status. It has these ex officio members who are sta- state-funded officials who we are concerned will, will maybe. Be, inclined, be less inclined to speak uncomfortable truths to power than purely independent members like the Fiscal Advisory Council is. Uh, and uh, the bill that establishes this, this crowd 
doesn't have anything that says the council will be independent in the performance of its functions. A very simple line that is at the heart of the fiscal advisory bill or laws that now is. So we don't see why the climate advisory council should have any less status or any less legal protection or any less independence than the, than the uh, fiscal advisory council. And we hope that will still be rectified in some form uh, at the final stages in the Doyle, although obviously it's unlikely now that they'll take the ex officio members off. But at least, therefore, it's all the more important to guarantee their independence as a function as a council and that those, say, coming from Chagas who have a legal duty to the Chagas board and to the aims of Chagas, which is agricultural expansion pretty much, that they can still go along with advice from uh, the uh, Climate Advisory Council that, that they wouldn't come out with as, as, as in, their, in their day job. So um, you describe the membership as strong, um, but there are serious concerns, are there, about, about how, the set, how the setup is going to work? Well, it, it will be interesting to see in practice now. I mean, I think, uh, I think many environmentalists will be, uh, you know, we weren't, we, our expectations for how, whether or not this government would go for a council that might, you know, cause them trouble by asking awkward questions. I don't think our expectations were very high, given, given the signals that were in the law. They hadn't established it in the independent way we wanted. Uh, but I think this this lineup uh, is interesting. I mean, you know, the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating to see what the, what their reports say and and, what, and whether the government actually acts on them, of course. But in one sense, the caliber of the people appointed this time is uh, is only part, of, only one piece of the jigsaw, because of course, in five years' time, another, another minister will appoint a new council, and if the climate bill, climate laws, that then will be doesn't really guarantee their independence, the next council, even if this council performs its job excellently, the next council could be could be Patsy's. OK, Owen, I mean, how would you assess, you know, the controversy that we, we've we've seen about this? Um, what's, what's your view on the independence of, of this panel? Well, um, before getting into that, what's perhaps slightly controversial is the absence of uh, Professor John Sweeney of M- NUI Maynooth, who's considered by many as to kind of state's foremost authority on climate change. I'd like to perhaps hear Oshin's view on his absence. But yeah, the environmental lobby have been kicking up a bit of, a bit of fuss about these uh, uh, four ex officio members. And opposition TDs last night tabled a number of amendments to the climate change bill, which provides for the uh, establishment of the advisory panel and all the amendments which would have uh, seen the four ex officio members, uh, I suppose, downgraded to a technical secretariat without voting rights were thrown out. So it's not to say the minister is not considering this, but he has certainly uh, ruled them out for the moment. Uh, They may be considered at the report stage, I think. Um, Anyway, um, I'd like to hear what Ushin thinks about the absence of John. I'll comment on those two things. They are are, uh, both worth worth thinking about. I think it's a pity that John Sweeney um, isn't on it. He is Ireland's leading climate change scientist. He's been part of the IPCC when it won the Nobel Prize. He has undoubted authority and credibility. Uh, I think he's not there because they think he's too too troublesome a voice. Uh, he, he he would, um, you know, have no patience with with inaction, shall we say? Uh, it's 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 ironic in a way that the, because he was contracted by the Oireachtas Committee to help to be their rapporteur to help them write their report that advised, that, that, that they used as their advice for, for how the council should be and how it should be like the Fiscal Advisory Council. Now, n- none of that implied he had to be on it, but it established his credentials even more because his, his basic credentials are as, a, are as, a, as an, an act, a natural scientist. But here was his policy and, and um, um, policy making and policy system credentials being burnished. So he is the obvious omission. So, and, and he would have set the tone in, in a different way. 
yeah, I think he would have he would have been a, a, a voice of. Uh, of both reason and urgency. Now, that's not to say others won't fill, fill that role. Um, uh, and Anna Davies is perfectly perfectly capable of doing that too, I'm sure, because uh, uh, I know her a little bit from the National uh, Social uh, Council and others too. I mean, they're, they're, it's a strong lineup, but um, you know, it, it's it, it, he's an obvious he's the obvious omission, shall we say? But I think the other question is is just to go back to the ex officio people, um, because I don't hold hold out much hope. That they will be let, they'll be they will be moved to a technical secretariat to make it more like the fiscal advisory council. That was a deal. That's a deal done between Fine Gael and um, and and Labour at the behest of the IFA. I mean, there's no. I'm not sort of wildly speculating as a tree hugger about this. I've, I've been <laughs> through the process with them. The the IFA celebrated the fact Chagas were on. They were concerned when they weren't on. They want someone there to represent the expansion of Irish agriculture and they weren't prepared to, because the previous versions of this bill back in the last government only had the EPA and the SAI. And mm-hmm. the ESI were put on with Chagask as cover, so they weren't just seen to be adding in Chagask because the IFA were calling for Chagask to be added. But that meant that at one stage they went, there might have been a majority, because we're only going to have seven in total, a majority of, of ex officio state officials, which would have completely compromised its independence. And what we've succeeded in doing through four years of campaigning is to at least re-establish a majority of independent members. It's still not as strong either in, in makeup or particularly legally as the Fiscal Advisory Council, and that's the problem. So just for take for example, at the very beginning, this, in the very first drafts, back in the Green, Green Party Fine Fáil government, this council couldn't even publish its own reports. It had to give them to government and hope the government would publish them. Now at least we've already achieved that they can publish their own reports, but it's, it's going to be 30 to 90 days after the government gets the report that they will publish it. Whereas the Fiscal Advisory Council, it has to be published within 10 days. And all, I mean, a lot of the resistance to this, of course, is not even the politicians, it's the civil servants. But the whole point of the Climate Change Bill is to, is to, is to provide for timely, transparent, evidence-based policy making in climate change, not in back rooms, but in public uh, so that we can see what the decisions are, what the trade-offs are. And all the time that's being fought by those who'd rather not do too much and rather not be seen to not do too much. And we do seem, sorry Laura, to cut in, uh, somewhat of an outlier in terms of not imposing uh, carbon emission reducing targets on ourselves as part of the climate change legislation. It seems Finland, it seems Denmark, it seems Britain have all done so and we don't seem to be doing it. I'd like to hear Ocean's opinion on why do you think the government seems so uh, hell-bent on avoiding this? I mean, this is this is the, the, the big hole in the climate change bill. Uh, a long-term target is the engine that, that drives everything else. Uh, one, of, one of the TDs last night called it you know, the, the discipline of targets. If that's, if, if that's there, well, then we discuss all the other things, all the policy trade-offs in, under, the, under the, the ceiling of a target. Without a target, so for example, we didn't put our Kyoto target into domestic law. It was an international obligation or commitment, but not legally binding in, in, in domestically. So every time someone objected to one of the measures that would have helped achieve it, we just dropped that measure and we didn't replace it because there was no legal imperative to meet the target. The idea of this was we'd put our new targets, international targets, into domestic law, so therefore we couldn't so easily fudge our way out of them. Um, the government have had made a number of arguments against doing this, for sure short-term and for long-term. For short-term, they say, well, we have our 2020 target from EU. It is more legally binding than Kyoto was. That's true. But we don't have a 2030 target yet. And even if they say, oh, then the answer to that is, oh, well, we're negotiating that with Europe now. We wouldn't, it would be disadvantageous. This was IBEX position. And I take this point. You know, we haven't yet decided inside the European Union how to share out our 2030 target. If we came up with one now and put it into law, we would essentially be folding our, our hands at the negotiating table. And that's now, we don't see it like that, but I understand that point. But 
for 2050, for the long-term transition, the low-carbon future, it makes no sense not to have a target, not to have a destination point. And the arguments yeah. the government come up with just don't hold water. And it is basically uh, uh, comes back to a fear of doing too much too soon because that, that will... Um, disadvantage some sector right now if we think in long term, make long term decisions. It, it basically make me pure, but don't make me, but not yet. I mean, how optimistic or pessimistic are you that, you know, that we can get a sense of urgency about this? <clears throat> uh, well, I think the climate law will help. I mean, there are those who think it's it's so weak that it, it's barely worth passing now. We still think it it is worth passing for the very simple reason that it has things in it like a legal obligation to have a, uh, every five years to have an action plan to reduce our emissions. Now, you might think, well, that's just common sense. Obviously, if we have European targets, we'll have that. This very government is going to go through its entire five years without having an action plan. So if, if nothing else, this law will make sure the next government can't do what this government did. Mm -hmm. um, and it means that every year, having had that plan, every year, at least four ministers, environment, energy, agriculture and transport, have to come into the Doyle and explain their progress or lack of progress. Given that otherwise climate change just doesn't get the coverage it, that that it, that we would say it deserves, um, that helps. It helps to hardwire uh, decision making and accountability on climate change into the political system. So, you know, does it inject the, the requisite urgency on its own? No. But we hope that this council, by having, if you if you look now, and I know they're not the same, but in terms of the public interest uh, or public curiosity, shall we say? Um, but if you think about how the Fiscal Advisory Council works, at least twice a year, it's on the front, what they say is on the front page of the business section of the Irish Times, and John McHale is on national radio saying, this is what our advice is, the government then has to go and respond to it. We can only hope that when a council as strong in terms of its credentials as this one is, if they are brave enough to say the, um, the inconvenient truths to government, that that will generate the public discussion. Okay, I mean, Owen, you know, which are the which are the main industries affected by this? You know, in 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 the, in the short to medium term, who's going to be uh, having to change their ways or, or or concentrating perhaps on on lobbying in order to avoid having to change their ways? Sure. Uh, currently, agriculture accounts for about forty percent of Ireland's non-trading uh, sector emissions, which exclude power generation which account electricity and heavy industry, which we, we don't really have a massive tradition in. So it's worth reminding listeners that, um, you know, the EPA believes we're going to struggle to make our 2020 targets, which uh, insist on a 20% reduction by 2020 on 2005 levels. Now, I don't think anyone would argue with the fact that the one of the chief threats to to our targets is the increased emissions sorry, envisaged under increased levels of agricultural activity uh, under the uh, government's Food Harvest 2020 plan and with the recent abolition of milk quotas. It's going to be really hard to make those targets given the fact that we're planning a major expansion in agricultural activity, probably the biggest uh, in, in, in recent decades. So uh, I think the recent, most rec recent figures I have is emissions from, from the agricultural sector based on data given by Chagas to the EPA are projected to increase by 2% between 2013 and 2020. And that's even with various efficiency measures uh, being put in place. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tough task for the government and the state to navigate this contradiction between agriculture and our emissions targets. Oshin, would you agree with that? I, I would, and I can talk about that because it's been one of the biggest battles uh, the whole way along. But actually, I'd like to make a, 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 a I'd like to answer answer your question about about where the d difficulties are in terms of sectors in a different way, because it's not all about um, the threat to ag economic activity in Ireland or our costs. 
there's been some interesting work done on the opportunities. And in fact, one of the members of the council that's just been appointed, Joe Curtin, um, did wrote a report for a small group of companies called the Corporate Leaders Group on, on Climate Change, Irish Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change, which included Diageo, Board Namona, Board Gash, uh, Siemens, um, uh, and a, f- a, few, a few others, um, on, on the opportunities, the business case for action on climate change. And they, they looked at retrofitting, they looked at the smart grids, they looked at renewables, they looked at climate smart agriculture, and they saw actually there's real potential for, for jobs here, for economic uh, activity, for revenue, um, and that it, it, this isn't all about uh, uh, costs. They also made the broader point that actually you know, we tend to focus on the short-term cost of action, and we ignore two things. The, the long-term cost of inaction and the co-benefits, not just the benefits in terms of reducing emissions, but the co-benefits of, of the action. So like we have warmer homes if we do retrofitting. That isn't actually usually factored into the to, um, traditional economic cost-benefit analysis of whether or not we should, we should act, by, act by, by, to, make certain, and to make certain investments. In fact, they were very clear using the words we should look at these things as investments, not as, not as costs. So that was, you know, not, again, that wasn't environmentalist making that case. It was, it was big business in Ireland saying, actually, look, Ireland could, could position ourselves as a hub for innovation and for, and for enterprise around smart grids. I mean, you know, one of the few areas where we're seeing Ireland kind of taking a lead uh, is the uh, it, moving ahead of where it has to is, the, is putting in place slowly but surely the infrastructure for electric cars mm-hmm. um, which you know it's been said we, we are small enough as a country that we could be a real test bed for that now places like Israel are doing it already but we, we could still be there, there are lots of potential for that and obviously renewable energy not just wind but also solar one of the things that fascinates me I keep being surprised not so much today I wouldn't be surprised but <laughs> uh, if you put a solar panel up on a roof in Dublin it has it would get 80% of the electricity, and not just hot water, electricity as a solar panel in Madrid, which is kind of startling. But that's because we of our longer days. In, you know, it's not dark now, in, 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 and it's, about, it's, it's actually daylight rather than sunlight that will help generate the electricity. So, you know, there's a real potential there. But at the moment, if I put one on my house, I don't get, not, not only do I not get any special subsidy, I don't get any money at all for the electricity that I generate that I don't use myself. So it just goes into the grid and there's no price back to me for that. So obviously there's no sense in me doing that. And let and, and say it could be like lots of places are putting them up on schools in other countries. Uh, but obviously there's no point in doing that here because schools aren't there in the summer, they aren't there at weekends, they won't use that electricity. So we need to put in place a price for solar and let loose that real potential we have for uh, for less controversial, shall we say, renewable energies that could make a real contribution. So there's lots of opportunities, as well as, yes, there are obvious short-term threats to our short-term economic return on investment. But, but you know, all the economic evidence from the, economic, from the Stern Review for the British government now almost 10 years ago says that the costs of inaction are much greater in the long run. But as ever, and I'll, and I'll finish on this point, is that, and this happened with the carbon tax as well, those who are affected by the short-term costs of adjustment are always the ones who are most informed, most organised and most vocal. And those who would otherwise face costs of inaction, like the consumers, are in the case of climate change, people aren't even born yet, are obviously less organised, uh, less vocal, and therefore they, they, their, their concern, the, the concern for them often lay weighs less heavily on, on decision makers when they're making their policies decisions and that's that is an inefficiency in, in, in the political system which has run because of which we run real risks on, on, on containing climate change and having a prosperous future I think uh, 
you know, she makes a good point that this mindset, this zero-sum game, that every progress we make in the environment is kind of done at the expense of the economy, is a kind of mindset that we're going to have to shift out of it. It seems to uh, permeate true officialdom. A quote from uh, Minister Alan Kelly last night at the Oireachtas Committee. He said, um, either the domestic mitigation targets are lower than the EU, in which case they would be redundant, or they are higher than those set by the EU, in which case they would be seeking decarbonisation at a cost to the national economy, thereby endangering our economic recovery and putting us at an economic disadvantage to the rest of so the EU. So there's a fear of taking a lead mm. on this. Absolutely. I mean, you could, it's, it's, it's written there, it's cast in stone. But that would be true if, if we were talking, if, if Friends of the Earth were proposing that we suddenly have a, a 50% target for 2020 or even a 50% target for 2030. And if you look at what our actual fair share would be historically, you know, it's much higher than what we're being asked to do at the moment. But we're talking about 2050. We're talking about the end point. And we're talking about looking to have a long-term driver of change. Because we, we commissioned Client Earth, who are environmental lawyers in the UK, to look at the law. And one of the points is there's no, there's no clarity about, 20, about how, how legally binding or how firm the EU targets for, for, for 2030 will be. Uh, or certainly never, and never mind 2040. So, but the EU is politically clear where it needs to get to for 2050. So we're not preempting anything by putting the lower end, the easier end of the of the range that that's been established for 2050 into our domestic law. It's you know, the UK is not 80 percent. Finland did it recently. California, the eighth largest, I think it's still the eighth largest economy in the world on its own, did it literally last week, put an 80% legally binding target into its law for 2050. It is basically, it, you know, and it's, we say legally binding, but look, there's no, you can't, because the government's concerned about law court cases. I, there's no court case in the UK anywhere else mm-hmm. that's going to be taken on the basis of breaching a 2050 target. If, if in 2040 we're not meeting it, they can change the damn So what target. happens when, when governments actually break their own legally binding <coughs> targets? So what actually, and, and have we got examples around the world when governments do this? We do have examples. We have examples principally from the, uh, not yet in the case of Britain of them breaking it, but of, uh, we do a bit from Scotland, but of, of, what's, of what it's supposed to happen. In Ireland, our, our, I think we have a, our government in particular seems to be terribly live in fear of litigation. And we know this from... <laughs> in the, in from many sectors, in many yes. Sectors. But the way the British law is set up is it's not really about having to go to court. They have five-year legally binding targets. It's not about having to go to court. It's about having to come back to Parliament, explain why you've missed the... Uh, the, 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 um, the, 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 the target and putting in place a new plan to make up the shortfall because it could be the case that there was a very cold winter or a very warm summer more fuel got used for heating or for cooling and therefore you missed the target obviously it's not going to be a smooth transition um, but it was the whole purpose was about forcing driving policy making and forcing political accountability and a target really helps to do that and fi- we wanted the five year targets adopted by the Doyle in the same way as adopted by Westminster that's not happening um, but but if, if they breached them we wouldn't be down in the four courts and if we were it's unlikely we'd necessarily have I, I'd have locus standi to take the case and if the case would be thrown out and sent back to the parliament for parliamentary decision So we'll leave it there for the moment but I'm, I'm sure this is a subject that we uh, will be returning to because there is more to come obviously um, Thanks very much to Oisín Coughlin from Friends of the Earth and to Irish Times journalist Owen Burke Kennedy. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. 
Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life September 2014. Now, on Monday, Apple unveiled Apple Music, its new streaming service, global radio station and social platform. Chief Executive Tim Cook has declared it to be the next chapter in music. So, is Apple Music a potential Spotify killer, the death knell of radio, and or the end of the music industry as we know it? Or is it, as one US investor has already dubbed it, a giant nothing burger? Here to take us to the chorus and sort out all these mixed metaphors is Irish Times technology expert Kira O'Brien. Kira, what is Apple Music and will it catch on? Well, Apple Music, first and foremost, is a streaming music service. Uh, You may remember last year, Apple paid out a massive amount of money for Beats Music. They took it over and the expectation that they would put out a streaming service has been there ever since because really, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a no brainer for Apple. Music downloads are on the way down. Like the, the, the amount of money that they're getting from music downloads is on the way down. Fewer people are downloading music, more people are streaming. You can see it reflected in the figures. So it was just a matter of time, really, before Apple put this out. Whether or not it's going to catch on will be down to, I suppose, individual users. Part of the issue with Apple Music is they're not going to offer a free tier like Spotify does. They're basically saying, if you want it, you pay for it. Now, at the moment, the US pricing is $10 a month, which is in line with the other streaming music services that are out there. But you can also get a family subscription, which I think gives you six accounts for $15 a month. Now, that could be a big thing for families because at the moment, if you pay for your music subscription, yes, other people can log in and use it because you've got a certain number of devices that you can install your account on. But if you log in from two different devices at once, one gets cut off. So having this extra, basically a cheaper version of a a subscription for your entire family will actually probably appeal to, say, families with teenagers, that kind of thing. Now, the problem is obviously getting people to pay for music will be the key thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's several reasons why Apple could actually make a success of this. First of all, the convenience. There are, I think there's 800 million iTunes accounts. That's a good proportion of those would have credit cards attached to them. Obviously, some won't because they'd be for younger users. They wouldn't have credit cards. But you're looking at a fairly sizable proportion of credit cards attached to those accounts. Apple already has that information. It would be very easy for an iTunes user just to sign up for the new Apple Music service without having to hand over any more details. So really, that's going to be the, the convenience aspect of it is what's helped Apple in the past like with um, iTunes and the success of iTunes and the iPod because it was a whole ecosystem. This is kind of just another layer, I suppose, to that ecosystem. It, that could be the, the, the killer thing for Apple. Because Spotify has a major lead, doesn't it, in this sort of renting, not buying model of, of, of accessing music. I think it's said today that it has about 20 million paying Um, subscribers. That's not including the people who use the free version of Spotify. So can Apple catch up just just by virtue of having, as you say, this payment relationship with its users? I think persuading people to switch away from the likes of Spotify, Deezer and all the other music services that are out there is going to be something that Apple is going to have to approach carefully. Um, Part of the problem is obviously Spotify has this free free subscription, so it's ad-supported I think they have 75 million users in total. Now, that's a fairly sizable chunk of people that don't pay for music. Trying to persuade those people that they should actually pay $10 a month for something that they're already getting for free, you know, that, that's, that's where Apple are going to maybe have a slight problem. Also, 75 million users 
in the grand scheme of things, you think about it, 800 million iTunes accounts, 75 million people signed up, 55 of them are on a free account. You know, why aren't other people signing up for, for streaming music? Yeah, I mean, is it just really that the, the market is only really so big and, you know, at the end of the day, a music fan, you know, the biggest music fan in the world is only going to sign up to one service. They're going to choose between Apple and Spotify and Deezer and all of the, these other ones. See, I wouldn't consider myself as a... I, I consider myself a music fan. I wouldn't be the biggest music fan in the world, but even I can only cope with one, one music service at a time. Um, yeah, and there's other options out there. There's Google has its own music service and there's Deezer, there's Spotify, there's RDO, there's all these different services, even Tidal now, uh, though how successful that will be now remains to be seen. It's the kind of thing that there are, there are still people who will download music. There are still people who buy vinyl. There are still people who buy CDs. But the problem is, is those markets are shrinking. Uh, well, vinyl is, I suppose, is, a, is a, yeah, experiencing I mean, a bit of a, a resurgence. It's a very, it's, a, it's experiencing a resurgence, but from a, from a niche position, exactly. position, we could say. And, you know, the digital downloads were so popular. I mean, digital downloads were, according to the music industry, what was killing CDs. Yeah. Um, and now digital They're downloads are being killed, is being killed by streaming. But I can't see artists being overly happy by this because, as you've seen in, in, over the last couple of months, some of them have actually backed away from streaming services. I think Taylor Swift is probably the biggest one to do it, mainly because they don't get all that much out of it. Now, from Apple's point of view, at the moment, if you sign somebody up for a year of Apple Music, uh, discount the, the three-month introduction that they're, they're going to give everybody, uh, you can sign somebody up for a year of Apple Music, you're looking at somewhere in the region of $120 for the year. People probably don't spend that much money. The average person probably doesn't spend $120 a year buying downloads through iTunes. So from Apple's point of view, it's a no-brainer that they get people signed up to this and they get people paying for it because even if they don't use the service, Apple still gets money. Yeah, who hurts there is the uh, It's the artists, artists that will get a fraction of a cent for every play and... You know, it's great for established artists who have a massive back catalogue. And that's the problem that Spotify has come up against time and time again. I actually don't think Spotify has made a profit yet. So that's another thing that they'll have to consider. You know, the, the revenue that they're going to get from streaming, you know, in terms of, of their, their bottom line. I mean, how much of a difference will it actually make? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's probably worth pointing out that Spotify has got as far as it has got with the support of most of the music industry. OK, there are exceptions and Taylor Swift pulled her music and... Yeah, Tom York calls it the, I think it was the last desperate fart of a dying corpse. Um, so he's not Lovely. too happy about it. There are a number of other artists from, I suppose, the pre-download age, uh, you know, have seen their income decline mm-hmm. and don't think that they're great for new artists either. Um, but I suppose um, my question is, I mean, what happens next in terms of all these deals between the music industry and the platforms. I mean, there, were, there are rumours, you know, that Apple is chasing a, a couple of artists like um, Adele and trying to get their new albums on an exclusive basis. And no disrespect to Adele, but I, I'd be pretty um, sceptical about that as a strategy because I just, that kind of fragmentation just kind of, just as a user, just kind of irritates me. I don't know which way to be going. Um, but what, what do you think? I mean, can exclusive content um, pull... Um, a particular platform ahead of the rest? 
Well, I think it depends on the content and it depends on how exclusive it remains and for how long. Because if you look at, at the existing services that are there for the mo- at the moment, they all do their own deals. I mean, you'll get some music on Deezer that you won't get on Spotify, vice versa. You'll also get some stuff on Spotify first. Then they have their own little things like they do live sessions on Spotify or you know they do specific artist sessions where people will record stuff for them. Um, Apple, you know, they're kind of going down the line of having their own radio station as well, which is, that's an interesting move. I'm not really sure yeah, where that's, that's going. Really that's saying Lowe actually moved from Radio 1 to do that. So, I mean, obviously yeah. he thinks this is going to be something big. I mean, that's supposed to have exclusive interviews. It's going to broadcast from New York, London and LA, I think. And they have three DJs confronting the whole thing, Zane Lowe being one of them. And they also have then this, this, I suppose, a social side of it called Connect, which is where artists can come in and they can connect directly with fans and fans can connect directly with artists. And I mean, at the moment, it's it's kind of SoundCloud and Twitter and Instagram. Instagram and it's all rolled into one. And I'm not really 100% sure where that will go because if you remember a while ago, Apple tried to do something similar with social network between its users called Ping. That mm. died a death because nobody really used it. Um, and I think if you're if you are an artist with you know with a young uh, a young base. Instagram has that cool factor mm-hmm. that I can't see Apple replicating on Apple Connect. And you're already you're already on Instagram. You have a certain number of followers on Instagram. You have a follower base on Twitter. You know, you can push out links to SoundCloud. You can do all sorts of different things. Like with Apple Connect, with this Connect part of music, what they're actually saying is, you know, you could put out lyrics, you can send out backstage photos, you can share unreleased tracks if you want, and all that's well and good, but I, I don't know if people will actually move en masse to Apple Music just for that. The Zane Lowe um, move is really interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I think that I mean that, that was um, an, announced a, a, a good, to- good time ago that he was leaving BBC Radio 1 to join to join this service. And it's, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Zane Lowe was, was an MTV presence. Uh, and then <laughs> I pretty much uh, took his uh, joining of Radio 1 about a decade ago as a signal that I should stop listening to Radio 1. So now he's moved on again to Apple. I would have thought that his um, his demographic is is sort of slightly older, maybe perhaps than this, uh, the, the generation that only ever rents music, that he that he's there to, to, to pull in people uh, um, 30 plus who, who still maybe even buy physical music and all of the rest of it but but what is what is it do you think that he'll offer honestly I'm not I, I'm really not sure about the, the whole Beats 1 thing I mean, what I will say though is obviously that's Zane the name Lowe, of the station Beats yes, 1 yes Beats 1 and Zane Lowe obviously has a long history in the music industry he has contacts he has people who will talk only to him or who will who will give him things first so I suppose in terms of getting exclusive interviews with artists maybe that's the line they're going down I, I, to be honest I'm, I'm going to reserve judgement on that till I actually hear this this radio station yeah. for at least a week you know it's 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 a it's a curious move but I suppose it's it's not that out there People still want to be guided, don't they, on music? Yeah, I mean, people want to be told what to listen to to a certain extent. Well, not told, want recommendations. Um, and to a certain extent, Apple Music will do that as well because they've they've brought in this thing where they they put curated playlists for people. You know, so it's not just algorithms. It's not just a, a machine deciding this is what you might want to listen to. You know, when you kind of take all that with the other developments that they've done through iOS nine and you know, making your phone a bit more. Um, I want to say intelligent, but kind of creepy, um, you know, because it knows what you do at certain times of the day and it anticipates, you know, I think it, it's just kind of telling the way it's all moving 
you know, it, it's all a bit more automated. But the Apple Music thing has a, a more personal twist to it. Okay, and um, today, um, finally, in, in, in Apple Music news, uh, today we heard that um, some of the deals may be uh, investigated uh, by antitrust um investigators in New York and Connecticut. Uh, they want to know whether or not the the music labels colluded or were pressured into into favouring the Apple service. Um, where do you see that going or could it, could that, you know, stymie things? I don't think it will. I think Universal has already come out and said that there was no pressure put on them, so I expect the other labels will follow suit. I mean, I, I can't see any labels holding their hands up and saying, yes, they did. Um, yeah, I think it's only natural that when something like this launches, especially when something to do with Apple, Apple is so big at this stage. I think it's only natural that you're going to get some kind of kickback on it. And, you know, whether it's the antitrust case or people just saying that they won't use it because it's Apple or because it's too big, because they, you know, they don't want to get back into DRM music, which is essentially what, what streaming is. Um, but I can't see it causing too much of a problem. I mean, it does feel like we'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see if 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 the record labels stop playing ball with one service or another, then we'll get a good picture of what happened. Then I imagine if that happens, the the other companies will be shouting very loudly about it. But we'll see what happens post June thirtieth. You know, when Apple Music is, is supposed to launch. I think it's a hundred countries straight away. Okay, a hundred countries. Hundred countries. Very yeah, good. That's, that's ambitious. Very good. So hopefully they'll pick up a few subscribers anyway. But thank you very much, Kira. Um, that's all we have time for today. And thanks indeed to all my contributors today. Uh, that's it for this edition of the Irish Times Inside Business podcast with me, uh, Laura Slattery. Uh, thanks to sound engineer JJ Vernon. And just a reminder that you can find all our business stories, interviews and analysis on irishtimes.com slash business and on our various apps. Thanks. <laughs>